Hello, everyone. I hope you're feeling well today, excited about being alive and being a follower of Jesus Christ in, in this world. You know, when Christ is in our lives, he gives us amazing purpose. And so we want to talk to you today about a part of what that is. We've been in this series, Debut of a Disciple, where we're talking about the incredible symbolism in the act of water baptism, where we go under the water. It's like dying with Christ. We remain a moment in that watery grave. It's like being buried with Christ. And then we rise out of the water. It's a powerfully symbolic thing of rising with Christ to a whole new way of life. But you know, a question comes to every true disciple of Jesus who's taking that seriously, and that is, how do you live that risen life consistently? Because if you've been in this world very long, if you've tried to follow Christ, if you're on that journey, you know that sin is a problem, right? And sin and the temptation to sin keeps us from often living that victorious life. And we all have these different struggles. I heard about a group of four pastors who were meeting together for fellowship, and that's a great thing for pastors or, or for any Christian to do. And one of them said, you know, guys, uh, our people come to us and they, they get very honest. They unload their struggles and their sins and they get vulnerable with us. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to hear that kind of confession. I think we need to confess our sins to each other. And everybody agreed that was a good idea. And so the first one started, well, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I look pretty good on Sunday, but at home, I, I lose my temper. I, I'm, I can be a bear to live with, he said. The second guy said, well, well I'll be honest, I, I really have a problem with alcohol, and sometimes I just get downright drunk. Third guy said, well, guys, you know I love golf, but it, it's more than a passion for me. It's an addiction, to be honest with you. And can I, can I tell you guys, sometimes I fake being sick on Sunday morning, and instead I go to the golf course to play a round of golf. And the fourth pastor is just sitting there all quiet listening to all this. And finally, they said, look, we've shared our sins. You share yours. He said, no, no, I don't want to do that. No, no, come on. We've shared ours. You, you share yours. The guy said, well, my big problem is gossiping, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we know what that's like. We've all got our weaknesses, right? Can, can I tell you something I've learned? The struggles we have, while there are some that are universal, there are some struggles that are common to all of humanity, no matter who you are. But here's what I also know. There are some struggles that I have that you might never have. And there are some problems and struggles and challenges that you have that may never become a stumbling block for me. So in a sense, we're all different. But there's one question that remains for every follower of Jesus Christ how do we live this victorious life? Because if it's really true, what we're saying in this series, if it's really true that we died with Jesus, we were buried with him, and that we were raised again, 
Is that just rhetoric? Is that just pious platitudes? Or is there reality to that risen life? How do we get victory over this struggle with sin? Well, I want us to begin by looking at two extremes that Christians have taken down through the centuries. Typically, we go to one of two extremes. The first extreme is legalism. Now, I don't know if you've heard that word or not, but legalism is a reality, and it's very, very easy to begin to drift into legalism. Here's what legalism is. You begin to make your own list of sins, your own list of standards, your own list of lifestyle choices that you believe are pleasing to God, and you live within the boundary of those man-made rules. And that makes you feel very secure, and it makes you feel very pious. In fact, it makes you feel superior to other Christians. And you may make a list like this. You shall cut your hair this way and no other way. You can dress in these kind of clothes, but no other kind of clothes. You shall never, ever, under any circumstances, enjoy a glass of wine. You shall not get within two feet of someone of the opposite sex unless you're planning to marry them. You shall always wear a jacket and tie to church, and on and on and on the list goes. Sounds like a lot of fun, huh? Yeah? All excited about that? Well, it's even worse than it sounds. Can I tell you what I've noticed about legalism? And boy, there are many legalistic Christians in this world, and we all are susceptible to it. Here's what I've noticed. Whenever you begin to go down that road, it absolutely saps the joy out of your Christian life. You lose that sense of freedom. You lose that sense of joy of following Christ and letting him guide you and navigate through the challenges of life. You've got your own little list of rules. And here's where it really gets nasty. Here's where legalism gets so ugly you begin to arrogantly judge everybody else based on how they keep your set of rules. Now, don't get me wrong. There are all kinds of issues that Scripture speaks to where we need to know what our convictions are about those. We need to know what God has said, and we need to live by those convictions. But don't drift into legalism. Don't start making man-made boundaries and rules and then judge everybody else by your list of convictions. That is legalism, and that's what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. It really, really gets ugly. But the second extreme that Christians go to is what you might call license. Now watch this. This is the diametrical opposite of legalism. Legalism makes a list of man-made rules and guidelines. The, the Pharisees in Jesus' day had 600 and something man-made rules that they had created, that they judged everybody by. Christians today do the same kind of thing. But license is very different. License says, hey, baby, hey, listen, we're saved by grace, so it doesn't matter now how you live. Listen, don't worry about sin. In fact, forget that struggle, you know? 
Because the more you sin, the more grace will abound. Do you think sin is really a problem? Listen, don't sweat it, because God will forgive you. That's his job. In fact, when you think about it, when you think about when you really think about it, doesn't get God get more glory the more I sin? Because it just makes his grace seem all that more amazing. So hey, brothers and sisters, sin boldly. Do whatever you wanna do. Don't sweat it because we're saved by grace. Now, can you believe that anybody would live that way? But they do. They do. And when people live that way, there's no sense of boundaries. There's no sense of standards in their lives. Listen, sharp disciples of Jesus, hear me, reject, reject both legalism and license. Healthy disciples of Jesus look to Scripture to get some biblical strategies for how to deal with temptation and sin. Now, for two weeks now, we've been exploring some passages in the book of Romans chapter six. And I want us to look again today as we kind of pull it all together. I want us to look again at Romans chapter six. And I want you to see right now, so you know where we're headed. I want you to see three words that are critical if we're gonna live that victorious risen life with Christ, which is so desperately needed in our world today. Here are the three words I want you to see. The words are know, count, and offer. So just make a mental note of those now. We're gonna come back to them in a few minutes. And I want you to, if you write in your, if you have a hard copy of scripture and you write in your Bible, I'm gonna ask you to circle each of those words when we come to them. These are important because there are three catalytic verbs that describe the key or keys to the victorious life. So with that as a background, with that as a foundation, let's now dive in to the first one. Here we go. If you're gonna live that risen life with Christ, if you're gonna be pleasing to God, if you and I are gonna represent him well in this world, here's what the apostle says. First of all, you've gotta know, you've gotta know that you died and were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and that you are risen with him to live a glorious new life. Now, let me ask you, do you know that? It's a theological understanding we're talking about. Paul uses that word no repeatedly here in this passage. And he's saying, look, do you understand what really happened when God by his spirit regenerated you, led you to repentance through his kindness, converted you, you were justified, and you were united with Christ? Do you know that? Do you get that? He's asking. Let's look at some verses here. We're gonna look at a good deal of scripture today. But let's start here in verse three. Look at what he said, or don't you know, there's that word, if you circle things in your Bible, you might wanna underline or circle that word, that all of us who were baptized into Christ 
Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We have been united, I'll come back to that thought in just a moment, with him like this in his death. If we have been, we will certainly all also be united with him in his resurrection. Paul's saying, look, when you went down into that watery grave, it is a powerful symbol of your death, burial, resurrection as you came back up out of that water. It, it, it doesn't make it happen, but it's like this wedding ring. This ring doesn't make me married, as I said on the first week, but it is a beautiful, wonderful symbol of all of the benefits and all of the commitments involved in marriage. And baptism in and of itself does not unite you with Christ, but oh, what an important symbol it is of that salvation. Now that word united, translated here, is the word Greek word symphotoi. Here's what it means. It's taking a branch and literally grafting it onto a vine so that they literally become one. Paul says that's how profound your union with Christ really is. Now, some of you right now, I, 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 you're, you're scratching your head going, man, pastor, come on now. This is kind of hard to accept. Because see, let, let's, just, let's just be honest here, pastor. I didn't really die with Jesus on that cross outside of Jerusalem in space and time. And I wasn't really buried with him in that garden tomb. And I didn't really rise with him on Easter Sunday morning. No, 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 not in space and time. But as far as God is concerned, you were. And the first step in living a victorious life is knowing that, that as far as God views you, you really did die with Christ. You really were buried and raised with him. And now you share in his resurrection life. So in the reckoning of God, it wasn't just Jesus who was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem, but as my representative, as my substitute in the legal counsels of God, I, Rex Keener, was crucified in Christ outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So Good Friday is like celebrating your funeral service. Yours and mine, if you belong to Christ. Because on the cross, something more than just Jesus' death took place. I died in Christ, and I was united with him, and now what's true of Christ is true of me. You say, man, that is awfully hard to wrap my brain around. But you've got to understand who you are in Christ. Can I, can I, can I just tell you something I've observed just in practical Christian life? I've talked through the years and all these years of ministry with literally, no exaggeration, literally thousands of people. Can I, can I be overly simplistic? Just allow me to be overly simplistic. But there's a huge, huge truth here. Most of the problems that you and I deal with day by day in our Christian life are somehow connected to us not understanding who we really are in Christ. 
Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? Do you know where you're headed? You see, God says it all begins with knowing that. And Paul just makes that assumption that real Christians are gonna know who they are in Christ. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Raised with Christ? No, they... They understood that, I think. He, he just made the assumption that they knew this theology. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So before we came to Christ, we were united. We had this solidarity with the old Adam's sin. And now that solidarity has been broken and now we have a union and solidarity with the second Christ, who is Jesus our Lord. And the key to living a victorious, risen life with him is to know, to know this truth. Do you know it? Do you know it? Do you get it? Do you understand that you are in Christ today? So let's go on and read a couple more passages. He says here, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. By old self, he's talking about the kind of person you were before your conversion. And that old person, that old self was crucified with Christ. But Paul continues here in verse eight, and he says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know, there's that word again, know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Do you know who you are in Christ? Now, some of you are thinking right now, but pastor, pastor, if, if all of this is really true, then how come I still struggle so much with sin? Well, let's go on to the second word now, because the second verb is a powerful idea also. The second thing to living a victorious Christian life is to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We get this idea from verse 11 here. In the same way, count yourselves. You might wanna circle that word. It's a very important word, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that word count, is a commercial word. It comes out of the accounting world of that day. And Paul uses it 19 times in the book of Romans alone. And what it means is to credit or impute something to someone's account. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you if you are a follower of his. And as God looks at you today, he doesn't see all your flaws and all your imperfections and all the difficult. He sees the righteousness of Jesus because you are united with Christ and you are alive with Christ. And when that really begins to dawn on us, folks, it really makes a difference. 
And Paul said, a part of this is to count yourself dead to sin. Say, but pastor, practically speaking, how do I do that? Do I walk around saying every day, oh, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. Oh, praise God, I'm so dead. I'm dead to sin, dead as a doorknob. That describes me. I am dead to sin. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Well, you can do that if you want to, but <laughs> sin is still gonna have a tug on you. Now, th th what I'm about to say is really, really important. When he says we're dead to sin, it's important we understand what he means by that. He doesn't mean that the old sin nature has been completely, watch this, annihilated. That's not what he says. There are some Christians who believe that. There are Christians in this world, I'm not being critical here, I'm just telling you what they believe, I'm not dissing them, I'm just saying I don't agree with this view. But they believe that when we come to Christ and are baptized, that God annihilates the old sinful nature, completely annihilates it, it's gone. Or they may believe that through some special experience of sanctification that happens. I've actually preached in churches that believe this. Years ago, growing up, down in Middle Tennessee, go to churches, you can't make this stuff up, folks. I'm gonna tell you, the testimony, people would pop up, go, Brother Bailey, Brother Bailey, the pastor, Brother Bailey, I was sanctified, perfect in Jesus 25 years ago. I haven't sinned in 25 years. I wanted to go stamp on Sister Campbell's foot and see if it was really still working or not. But she really believed. And, and when, you, when you probe into it, what they do in order to sustain that belief is they start calling sins mistakes. Oh, it, it's just a mistake. That's just a human mistake. No, that's a sin. That's a sin. But that's the way they make that theology work. I heard about a church that believed this and a young man went there who was really struggling with all kinds of sins. And so, man, he heard this message. Look, when you believe in Jesus and get baptized in water, he annihilates the, human, the sinful nature and you don't even have any desire ever again for sin. He said, man, that's what I need right there. That'll solve all of my problems. And so he convinced the elders to baptize him. But it was the middle of winter and it was freezing cold outside, and they did all their baptizing in the river in town. It had ice everywhere, but he convinced them to go out, and so they baptized him in the river, and as he came out of the water, he said, hallelujah, I feel so good, I'm not even cold. One of the elders said, he's lying, we're gonna have to dunk him again. <laughs> Praise God. No, no, I hope, you, I hope you get where I'm coming from. We've gotta be realistic. It doesn't mean that he annihilates the sin nature completely. It still has a tug on us. But what it means is that the power of sin in our lives, the back of that power has been broken and sin no longer has to be our master. As Paul writes in verse 12 of Romans Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
One young man went to an, a wise old pastor and said, Pastor, when will I ever come to the point in my Christian life where the, the temptations of the flesh no longer have a hold on me? And the, the wise old pastor said, Son, I wouldn't trust myself until I'd been dead for about three days, right? <laughs> right? As long as you're alive on the planet, you are susceptible to sin. But it used to rain, it used to run your life, but over time, as a follower of Christ, sin should lose a good deal of its destructive power. You won't be sinless, but you should sin less as you walk with Christ. You need to know who you are in Christ, united with him. You need to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Here's the final verb, here's the final verb, Offer, offer yourself not as an instrument of wickedness, but as an instrument of righteousness. Let's read a couple more verses here. Verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather, here's that word, you may wanna circle it, it's an important verb, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I like that word offer because can I just get incredibly practical? As you and I get up every morning, we've got a choice to make. Who are we gonna offer ourselves to daily and even moment by moment. You know, Jesus once said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And this is a daily choice, I would suggest, who you're going to offer yourself to. And he says, there's alternatives here. You can offer your body and even the parts of your body as instruments to wickedness. That's an option. Or you can offer your body can offer yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. That, I, does that make you feel impersonal when the Bible uses that word instrument? Instrument, you know, orchestras play instruments, right? The, uh, surgeons use instruments when they perform delicate surgeries. And here's the thing about instruments. They, they're really kind of useless in and of themselves, aren't they? I mean, I, but a violinist, a master violinist can take a violin and pull his bow across the strings of that violin and, oh, produce beautiful music. Can I tell you something? I could take that same violin with that same bow and pull it across those same strings and every dog in the Capitol District would start howling. It's true, folks. Because the most important thing about an instrument is who's playing it, right? Or a surgeon, a surgeon. A, a, a skilled surgeon can take her instruments and perform delicate microsurgery that is helpful in and healing and gives hope to a person. But I, I could take those same instruments to the same patient and he would be dead on the table. 
Because don't miss the point, the all-important thing about an instrument is whose hands it is in. So Paul says here, look, we got a choice every day. Every day we get to choose whose hands, as it were, we're gonna put our lives into. So you don't counter sin by legalism and you don't counter it by license. You counter sin by knowing who you are in Christ, counting yourself dead to sin but alive to Christ, and then offering your body daily as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. And when you do that, he will bring some beautiful music out of your life. It's your choice, though. That is your choice. Are you gonna be instruments of wickedness or instruments of righteousness? And I like the way Paul closes this section in verse 14. All of you leaders who lead in any capacity in God's kingdom and his church, whether it's ministries or small groups or discipleship endeavors, whatever it may be, I, I know that you probably pray for people on a regular basis. I do too. And I like to pray scripture for people. Can I tell you a great verse to pray for people? Verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. The question that comes to us, bottom line, is who is our master going to be? A pastor in Texas used a very creative visual aid to begin his sermon one Sunday evening. He brought up on the platform with him a beautiful Irish setter dog that actually belonged to the youth pastor in the church. And oh, the youth pastor loved his dog so much. In fact, once when the dog uh, had been sick and had to stay in the veterinary kennel for a while, <laughs> the youth pastor actually got permission to sleep, sleep in the kennel with the dog. So needless to say, this dog was very devoted to his master. Well, on that Sunday evening, with the dog at his side, the senior pastor rolled a ball across the platform and said, fetch, Josh, fetch. But the dog just sat there. He would not go get the ball for the religious leader. And so then the, the pastor called up on the platform a friend of his who was a bodybuilder. And this big muscle-bound man came on the platform and with a scowl on his face, got right in the dog's face and said, fetch, Josh, fetch. But Josh would not fetch for power. And then a banker came forward and he had a three-piece suit, immaculately dressed with an amazing tie on. And he pulled out his wallet and kind of waved a, a stack of $100 bills in front of Josh's face. And he said, Josh, if you'll fetch, I'll reward you. Fetch. But the dog would not retrieve the ball for money. And the preacher said, okay, let's everybody get involved here. Everybody get involved. Let's get some peer pressure going. I'd like for everybody to stand to your feet and yell, fetch, Josh, fetch. Fetch, Josh, fetch. And everybody did. And it was a chorus telling Josh to fetch, but 
Josh would not fetch for peer pressure. And then a beautiful young woman with auburn hair, almost the exact color of the dog's hair, came upon the platform. Oh, she was stunningly gorgeous. She patted Josh on the head and with a sultry voice whispered in his ear, please, Josh, would you go get the ball for me? And the dog did flinch just a little bit. <laughs> but Josh would not fetch for the wiles of a woman. And finally, pastor called up the youth pastor, the owner, the master of the dog on the platform. And the youth pastor simply said, Josh, go get the ball. And that dog bolted from his stance, retrieved the ball, and brought it back to his owner. And after everybody had kind of settled down, gone back to their seats, the pastor began his sermon by asking the congregation this question, who are you fetching for? How would you answer that? Who is the master of your life? You see, everybody has a master. It could be a person, past or present. It could be a set of values or a philosophical worldview that we, we trust in. It could be success or fame or fortune, but something is driving us. Something is calling the shots in our lives. And whatever that master is, is gonna determine your behavior and it's gonna shape your destiny. And for the true disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the one calling the shots. And oh, they may have struggles, they may have temptations, they have all kinds of hurdles in this life as they live for Christ. But listen, at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the one they're gonna fetch for. Jesus Christ is the one they're gonna follow. Jesus the Lord is the one they're living for. And my question in closing does that describe you? And if not, what's keeping you from it? What's the barrier there? I invite you, I implore you to say yes to Jesus Christ today, to surrender your life to him and let him be the one who's calling the shots. Father, would you take this moment and just honor your word right now and use it to call, to challenge. Father, your spirit works in mysterious ways. And I pray for that individual right now that's caught right on the cusp of a decision. And they're wondering, where do I go here? Lord, may this be a moment in time that by your grace, they say yes to you. I'm gonna follow Jesus Christ. You've brought them to this moment. You've drawn them. You've opened the way. Lord, would you regenerate their heart, justify them by your grace, convert their soul, call them into a life of discipleship, 
a life of daily repentance as they follow you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.